Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare. But through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com, that's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Tom Hartman Program. One of the few Republicans or former Republicans in this case whose podcasts I enjoy is Joe Walsh. He's got one called White Flag with Joe Walsh. I believe there's like three of them out now. Uh, and bring us up to date. It's over on Apple and other podcast providers. His Twitter handle, Walsh Freedom. He's a former member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Illinois, the 8th District, former presidential candidate, author of F Silence, calling Trump out for the cultish, moronic, authoritarian con man he is, and uh, now an independent. Joe, welcome to the program. Hey, it's awful nice to be with you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Back at you. Donald Trump came out yesterday and said the insurrection took place on November 3rd, Election Day. January 6th was the protest. You're calling this an act of war. You want to elaborate? And maybe I got over my skis a little bit, but I don't think that I'm no longer outraged by anything Trump does. I believe he's a dictator. I believe he's un-American. I believe he's a traitor. In my mind, that was a declaration of war. What did he do, Tom? He attacked our elections again. He said that a democratic election uh, was the insurrection, and the insurrection was the protest. I found that statement to be an utter attack on this country, and it's pathetic that no Republican raises their voice. I'm with you. Let's talk about your former party. I'm, I'm really curious to get your perspective as a former Republican of exactly what the Republican Party is. And I'll very briefly give you my kind of narrative understanding of what's happened over the last 50 years. I've lived through it. And I would love to hear your take on my take. And we yeah. can also talk about the Democrats if you want. I grew up in the 1950s, and, and my dad was a Republican activist. 
the old Eisenhower Republican Party, and for that matter, the Nixon Republican Party, was committed to progress and change in America, but in a very slow and cautious way. That was kind of the definition of conservatism. All this radical stuff of, you know, the women's movement and end the war immediately and all this kind of stuff. That was too much for my dad and for a lot of Republicans. But they weren't opposed to moving forward, and they certainly were generally opposed to oligarchy in the United States. Then, in yeah. 1976, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a decision called Buckley versus Vallejo, said, okay, uh, from now on, if a billionaire wants to pour cash down the throat of a politician, that's no longer considered bribery or political corruption. That's now called free speech, and it's protected by the Constitution. Two years later, in 1978, in a, in a Supreme Court decision called, uh, called uh, First National Bank versus Bilotti, they said the same thing for corporations. And so what happened, at that point in time, the Democratic Party was fat and happy with the unions. They, they, were, they were just, you know, the unions were the major source of funding. Democratic Party was like, okay, <laughs> so what? The Republicans, however, were in crisis. I mean, this is post-Nixon, right? I mean, there was talk about the Republican Party going away. And so as we went into the Reagan era, it looked to me, and I, I, I actually have documented this fairly well in a couple of books, the Republican Party basically said, okay, big corporations, okay, billionaires, we're here for sale, because now the Supreme Court has legalized it. And the Republican Party became essentially the party of the oligarchs and the big corporations. And it seems like it has just gotten worse and worse and worse. Citizens United, of course, doubled down on that in 2010. And then, you know, after Reagan destroyed the labor unions in the 80s and 90s, and we went from a third of America being unionized to 9% when, when Bill Clinton became president, Clinton found himself in a crisis because the Democratic Party couldn't fund itself with the, with the unions anymore. And so the, he started the whole third way movement. Hey, let's get in bed with the corporations just like the Republicans did, only we'll leave the dirty industries like, you know, uh, coal and oil and chemicals to the Republicans. We'll take the clean industries. We'll be in bed with the bankers and the insurance companies, you know, the white collar stuff. That is fading out of the Democratic Party now as the neoliberal movement is being kind of pushed aside by the old fashioned Democrats, um, you know, thank God. Um, but the Republicans, it seems to me, are still fully in the pocket of the, the Koch billionaire network and, and, and giant industry. Am, can, am I, you know, that's my oversimplification, right? <laughs> my 50 year history yeah, in, in two yeah. minutes. Your thoughts, Joe Walsh? So uh, you and I could have a fascinating conversation on the role of money in politics and unions, and we'd probably disagree with each other on most of it. But I do appreciate what you said, and let me just add to it by saying this. The Republican Party basically consists of old white men and old white women, and America is becoming less white by the day. That's a good thing. The problem is the Republican Party base has never embraced it. So along came a demagogue like Donald Trump who tapped into that ugly nativist aspect of the base. Tom, I was a Tea Party guy in Congress. You probably disliked me back when I was in Congress. I've publicly apologized for a lot of what I did to rile up the base. And the party establishment over the years ignored the concerns that their base had. Instead of educating the base that diversity is a good thing and legal immigration is a good thing, the party ignored their base. So by the time I came around and then by the time that Trump came around, 
man, the base was pissed off. And when Trump said, I'm going to build a wall and keep brown and black people out, he was theirs. And they clung to him. And now it is an authoritarian embracing white nationalist embracing cult. It's a scary thing. So, uh, you know, I get that, Joe, and, and I get that narrative. But it seems to me that you're dealing with the, at the level of effect rather than cause. Um, you know, when Reagan started destroying labor unions, he started destroying the American middle class. Uh, NPR had the headline, I think the headline of the year or the decade, uh, five years ago, that 50% of Americans are no longer in the middle class. When Reagan came into office, the middle class was about 68% of America. And today it's 47% of America. So, and, and this is the direct consequence of Reagan's economic policies, particularly his taxation policies. Uh, it's also the direct result of the policies that Bill Clinton continued from Reagan. Let's, let's keep in mind, Reagan and Bush negotiated the GATT, uh, which led to the World Trade Organization that Bill Clinton helped yeah. bring into being, and they negotiated NAFTA. That's why it was a big deal in the 92 campaign was because it was the George W. Bush administration had negotiated it. Clinton signed it. And so as a result, we lost 60,000 factories, tens of millions of good jobs and all the jobs in the communities that surrounded them. All that stuff went overseas and people are seriously pissed off about that. And so the, the Democratic response to that has been fairly consistently, you know, I mean, Sherrod Brown has been singing this song, Bernie Sanders forever. You know, we need to we need to stop offshoring jobs. We need to end this whole neoliberal experiment. It's been a disaster. Bring those jobs back home. We can't even build a damn cruise missile now without chips from China, and we're preparing to go to war with them. Really? Um, so we've got this yeah, economic yeah, but, crisis, but the Republican Party's response to that and Donald Trump's amplifying that was. Oh, you know, it's not it's not that, you know, our corporations that fund us have moved all our manufacturing overseas. The problem is that those black people want your jobs and those brown people want your jobs. And so you need to get hysterical about them. And I would say that's a fact, not cause. Yeah, vis-a-vis -vis the Republican Party. The weird thing is Trump goes out of what you said. Oh, I it know. It was all a con. It was all a feint. He was lying when Trump said, I'm going to bring all those jobs back. I'm going to bring coal back. I'm going to bring all the industries back. It was all BS, but he was able to grab on to a lot of the working class vote simply by fooling them. I will look, I, I can't stand Trump, and I think the Republican Party is dying. But the Republican Party continues to get a greater share of the working class vote, not just the working class white vote. And Democrats need to really open their eyes to that. Oh, I, I agree with you. And, and, and like I said, I think the Democratic Party is in the process of flushing this whole neoliberal thing out. And that's a good thing for step by step. You know, I've been running a contest on this show for 18 years. Uh, yeah. Anybody who can name a single piece of legislation that was authored by Republicans... It's passed through uh, with a Republican majority in the House and Senate, was signed into law by a Republican president in my lifetime, since 1951, that principally benefits the average working people, the average working person, or, or certainly since the Reagan Revolution. Let's, let's, let's just time it at the Reagan Revolution, 1981. Well, you and I, you uh, and I my I, friend, I, I will give him an award. Well, well but nobody's ever won, it. Joe. It's a <laughs> I can name hundreds of pieces of Democratic legislation that meet that criteria. I can't name one piece of re Republican legislation while you were in Congress, before you were in Congress, or since you've been in Congress. Well, Isn't that the real problem? Again, no, well, I appreciate the question, but you and I are probably coming at it from a different place. 
I believe that free trade policies benefit middle class America. Uh, and I always have believed that. Because I, we, get, we get lousy jobs, but now we get cheap junk? No, you, we, we are forced to compete. And we get, I mean, it's better for every American consumer. We get better priced goods. The problem is when politicians like Trump and others say that we can shut off the rest of the world and we're only going to buy American and we'll build a wall around America and protect all these jobs, that's all a bunch of BS. We live in a, in, 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 in a world now, in, in a free trade world now, and you can't lock up America and tell people anymore we're going to buy American. That just doesn't work. You know, in 1791, George Washington asked Alexander Hamilton, his Treasury Secretary, to come up with a plan to build, you know, to turn America into a, an industrial powerhouse. Uh, he proposed that in 1793, and Congress adopted it. Madison's, or excuse me, Hamilton's 11-point plan for manufacturers. You can look it up. Yeah. It, and, and, you know, point number one was, you know, uh, tariffs on imported goods that are not, you know, on in, imported finished goods. Um, export tariffs on raw materials, um, subsidies for for growing essential industries. Um, you know, it, it, this that stood until 1984. I mean, you know, we had an industrial policy in the United States until the middle of the Reagan administration. In 1984 or 1983, Sam Walton's slogan at Walmart was "100% made in America." What you're well, we saying is impossible, right. Joe, is we, what was normal in America for 200 years. Well, fair point. And we were founded with the ability to enact tariffs, but we were not founded with a federal income tax, which came along afterwards. I'm just saying uh, it, it's a much different world now, and it's been a different world for 40 years. And it's killing and our middle class. Well, but but again, Tom, you that... that if we don't compete, it will. I just don't believe the answer is to not even engage in competition. How does a company and, and in, in Lansing, to, Michigan, build a wall around America? I, I'm not talking about building a wall around America. How does a company yeah, in Michigan yeah, yeah, compete I with a company you. in China you, that's friend. subsidized by you. the Chinese government? I love you, my friend, but you are trying to build a wall, not Trump's stupid wall at the border. But you want to build like a protectionist wall. I do. And the, the, the genie's out of that bottle. That's not I don't think back. so. I, th I think that is, that is why, I, you know, I lived in, and worked in China back in the 80s, and it was a very poor country. Now, you know, they've got bullet trains. I mean, they've got our jobs, our consumption has built China. How's well, that a good thing? But also, but also, China has built China. China can... China can print whatever money they want to print, and they can spend whatever it's not about they money. want to spend. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. They can build. They can build entire cities and then knock them down. That's what they do. Yeah, Joe, you want to consider continue this conversation? You want to wrap this up, and we can live to fight another day. Well, let's live to fight another day because I'd love to continue this another time, Tom. Okay. It's good stuff. All righty, Joe Walsh. Uh, his uh, his uh, podcast is called White Flag with Joe Walsh. You can find it wherever fine podcasts are available. His book F Silence. Uh, Joe, thanks a lot for dropping by. Thank you, brother. You're Appreciate it. Yeah. Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Walsh Freedom, by the way, is his Twitter handle.
rant from the Hartman Report today, I think it's one of the better ones that I've done, is conservatives and billionaires want you to confuse rights of citizenship for welfare, which, by the way, is exactly what Joe Manchin is doing. He's echoing this thing that we've been hearing since the Reagan administration. Really, we were hearing it before that. We used to hear this from the John Birch Society, right? Democrats with their uh, social security, now keep in mind, John Birch Society, 1950s, this was before Medicare. Social security is socialism. It's going to lead us we're down the road to Soviet communism. Here since, Reagan picked up the mantra, of course, and it's been the mantra of the conservatives ever since, and, and, and even to some extent, Bill Clinton picked this up with his end of welfare as we know it rhetoric, is that things that well, what, what Joe Manchin said, this kind of crystallizes it. He said that, uh, you know, free college for students and eyeglasses for seniors will produce what he calls an entitlement society. Well, what the hell does that mean? What he's really saying is everybody will be on welfare. And this is the grand hysterical fear of the Koch network and the rest of the right-wing billionaire class that, oh my God, we're gonna to have to pay taxes to provide things to people that we don't even know or particularly like. And what they miss is this very real distinction, and I ranted about this a couple of days ago, and, and I, you know, but I, I think it's really worth putting a punctuation mark on. They miss this very real distinction between what is a social safety net on the one hand and what are the rights of citizenship, the things you expect to have from government as a citizen of a developed country. Now, the welfare stuff, this is, this is society's obligation. Uh, you could argue it's a moral obligation. It's also a practical obligation to catch people when they fall. We live in a largely capitalist society, and capitalism about every six to ten years has a hiccup and goes into a recession. It's, it's predictable as the rain coming. You can see these cycles literally going back to the founding of the republic. And when capitalism has its hiccups, people fall out of the system. People lose their jobs. They lose their health care. They lose their ability to, to pay their mortgage. They can't afford to feed their kids. Welfare is there to fill in those cracks. It's to catch people when they fall. It's a pretty straightforward thing. Right? Another example of welfare is FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. When you fall not because capitalism hiccuped or not because, you know, you got sick, but when you fall because a hurricane hit you, or, you know, the Texas power grid has, has had its privatized owners sucking profit out of it so long that it's so fragile that when it, they get a deep freeze down there, it shuts down the whole damn state. Well, again, you fell. So FEMA comes in and says, okay, we'll give you a trailer to live in and we'll give you a stipend and we'll bring you water and we'll get you some food. That's welfare. These are intended to be short-term solutions to crises. Now, the rights of citizenship are a completely different thing. And that's what Joe Manchin apparently doesn't understand. 
The rights of citizenship include things like good public schools, decent roads, police and fire protection, uh, and a functioning government paid for with tax dollars that maintains it all, that keeps it all going. This is the structural stuff. And some of the structural stuff has to do with what you could argue they call welfare, say Social Security and Medicare. But we pay into it through our entire lives. We're just getting our own money back. So, you know, I, I would say that that's part of the rights of citizenship, too. The rights of citizenship are what provide the foundations for a functioning society itself. The physical infrastructure is what makes normal life possible. And the fancier and more sophisticated that infrastructure is, you know, the more vibrant a nation's economy becomes. This is why Dwight Eisenhower, the Republican president in the 1950s, built the Eisenhower Interstate Highway System. Yeah, you can now more easily go and visit grandpa and grandma. And I remember, I, I was a kid in the 1950s. We used to drive from Lansing up to Nuego, Michigan every weekend. And it was about a two-hour drive on, on the old, you know, two-lane roads. And then they put in Highway 96, and we could just hop on 96 in Lansing and be in Grand Rapids in, in 35, 40 minutes, and boom, there, you know, and then drive another 30 miles up to Nuego and visit Grandpa and Grandma. Um, yeah, and that was wonderful. That happened in the 50s as a result of Eisenhower building freeways, as I recall. But more than that, it facilitated commerce. Suddenly, trucking became a big thing. You didn't have to, you know, just transport everything by rail. And, you know, and the rail lines don't go everywhere. The highways did pretty much go everywhere. And that created such an economic boom in the 1950s and 60s and 70s that the taxes on all that economic activity paid down our national debt from the 130% of GDP it was at at the end of World War II, which is where it's at now. Paid it all the way down to about 20, you know, well, it was $800 billion when Ronald Reagan came into office in 1981. $800 billion. Nothing. It was paid off because we built infrastructure. And, and, of course, Eisenhower didn't just build the freeway system. He built new schools. I went to one of them starting in 1957. The, he, built, he built hospitals or funded the building of hospitals. So that's the physical infrastructure, but there's also the human infrastructure. And again, this is not welfare. When you give everybody in the country a good education, and we know this, it's why we have public schools. You give everybody a good education, it helps society. You've got an educated and functional society. Well, nowadays, for most jobs that pay decently, you have to have a college degree, why shouldn't that be considered part of our public education system? Why should we be the only developed country in the world that doesn't offer free college or, or very, very cheap college? Why? Just so some banks can make money on a trillion and a half dollars with a student loans? Really? That's the reason? Well, actually, that is the reason. And it's stupid. But Joe Manchin thinks if you give two years of community, we're not even talking about state colleges like MSU. We're talking about community college. Yeah, two years of community college. No, no, Joe Manchin says, that creates an entitlement society. Bull! That's the core infrastructure of a nation. And what about keeping people healthy? 
That's the core infrastructure of a nation. If you don't have healthy people, you don't have a healthy workforce. So our human infrastructure is as important as our physical infrastructure. And, you know, I get it why the billionaires are opposed to this. They don't want to pay for it with taxes. They want that extra tax money to go into their money bins. I get it. The morbidly rich, I, you know, they don't have to use public transportation. They don't fly through our airports. They use private airports. They never go through security. They live in a literally a completely, well, not literally, but metaphorically, a completely separate world from you and me. They don't need the stuff that a nation that makes a nation work. The 700 billionaires we have, and the and the and the tens of thousands of people who make you know who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. I get that, but a legislator like Joe Manchin should understand that that's just their point of view. Of course, it's also Joe Manchin's point of view. He was born rich, and and became a coal baron on his own. He and his daughter are multi-multi-millionaires. So I guess they don't need this stuff either. But I think it's pretty important that somebody call this out and just say, you know, we need a national energy infrastructure. We need a national educational infrastructure. We need a national healthcare infrastructure. These are the things that make a first world nation. And these so-called conservatives, like Kirsten Sinema, who doesn't want to pay for it with, by, by reversing a part, just a part, of Trump's tax cuts. And Joe Manchin, who thinks, oh, it's going to cause everybody to be on welfare. Somebody needs to educate these people. I get it. You know, we haven't been teaching civics in high school forever. Although Joe Manchin's older than I am. He had to have taken civics in high school. But I could see where maybe Kirsten Sinema never had a civics class. But if we want to compete in the 21st century, the United States, we're the only developed country in the world now that doesn't offer free health care and free college. And that isn't aggressively moving its energy infrastructure toward renewables. Which is all, these are, this is what the Build Back Better program is about. If we want to compete in the 21st century, we've got to get our act together and stop listening to these right-wing billionaires. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And their BS grassroots movements, uh, you know, from the Tea Party to QAnon to, uh, you know, the, all, the whole bunch of Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Richard in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Hey, Richard. How's Ypsilanti? What's up? 
Uh, Tom, you you pretty much stole my rant. Oh no, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I was just about what I was going to talk about that uh, entitlement. Uh, I'm, I'm tired of Manchin and Republicans talking about entitlements like it's a dirty word. Yeah, some sort. Uh, we've been paying into that all our working lives. Yeah, and darn right we're entitled to that. Yep. And uh, you know, I just just it, it just had been rankling me for ever since I heard him say it. And uh, another thing, too, is I got news for him. We already have an entitlement society. It's called the rich and the ultra-rich. Oh, Joe Manchin's making hundreds of millions or making millions of dollars off tax breaks for coal. He's not paying yeah. for the disposal of the coal slurry. He's not paying for the ca cases of cancer that are caused downriver by dumping their coal waste in the rivers in West Virginia. He's not, he's not paying for, you know, remediating the mountaintops and, re you know, dealing with uh, the old abandoned gas wells and all the all the empty coal mines all around West Virginia where the companies just said, oh, we're supposed to clean it up. We're going to declare bankruptcy. No, he's not paying for any of that. Yeah, I know. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. Uh, Richard, thank you. You know, spot on. I'm, I'm with you. Thank you. Chaz in Lakewood, Washington. Hey, Chaz, what's on your mind today? I saw a radical statistic moments ago. Even if you earned a salary of $1 million a week from the day that Christ was born, until now, you still wouldn't be as rich as someone like Jeff Bezos. Quick question really? before I continue, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> is that crazy? Is it that, is. Uh, real quick question before I continue, Tom. Is there an unlimited amount of money or limited, Tom? There's a, well, it, it depends on how you define money. But if you're talking about dollars, there's certainly a limited number. There you go. See, for, for Jeff to have so much more, many have to have so much less. I don't know why the cons would want a permanent underclass of Americans roaming the street, picking at their bones. There are soldiers who are eligible for supplemental nutrition assistance program or SNAP. Right. Look, food stamps. If a person makes, right, thank you, and welfare. If mm -hmm. a person makes $50,000 a year, then they only spend $35 for SNAP. Meanwhile, they are giving 4000 for corporations that don't pay a cent in tax. Is Kentucky griping when they get two and a half bucks for every dollar they put in? Listen, if you want to stop Kentucky, quote unquote, welfare, start calling it affirmative action, Tom. Hashtag, <laughs> GOP, on your, hashtag GOP on your shoes. Yeah, yeah, or <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is amazing, Chaz, and and this whole red state welfare thing. I mean, you know, I'm I'm still waiting for somebody to introduce the end red state welfare bill, um, because because it's a problem. I mean, you know, I we're all supporting the red states, and I you know I just don't think it's right. I I I, I think they should carry their own weight, at least to to, to a reasonable extent. I you know, and, and they should invest in their own states. Paul in Lucerne, California. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I'd like to talk about your last guest, but I'm not going to waste my breath. I don't agree with anything he has to say. He's a typical Republican. Yeah, but at least he's willing to have a, a reasonable conversation. God bless him. You know, God bless him. And he talks to you, and he, and he yeah, I like that. I yeah. think that's awesome. That was the only beneficial thing about him today. I'm sorry. 
I'd like to talk about Joe Manchin and entitlement. Sure, go Joe for Manchin it. Joe Manchin has a state that is an entitlement state. It's a taker state. It never pays its own way. It constantly lives off blue state welfare. So entitlements are good enough for your states, but it's not good enough for the taxpayers. And 40% of America is not middle class. What is your definition of middle class? My definition of middle class, this is what I learned in 1977 home economics class, okay? To make it into the middle class, you must have enough savings to be able to live for an entire year without changing your lifestyle. That's when you made it into the middle class. Who do yeah. you know in the middle class? Who? I know a few people. Yeah. I know lots of people that make 85 bucks an hour, but if they lose their job for more than a month, they're done. Yeah. No, I, I get all okay, that. So and, and I'm sorry, not 40% of the middle class. We have 40% of a new thing called the working middle class. As long as you keep your job, you can keep your lifestyle. But as soon as you lose your job, you lose your lifestyle. That's not the middle class. Yeah, if you, if you look at that article that I published Tuesday over at HartmanReport.com that, uh, you know, about the middle class and how country, countries have to choose whether or not they're going to have a middle class, um, there's a link in there to that NPR story that indicated that, you know, fewer than half of Americans are now in the middle class. And, and the, the criteria that they used is the criteria that economists have used for decades, which is actually a numerical income range. And I think it ran from something like 35000 up to 110000 or something like that. It was a fairly broad range of money. And that was the American middle class. And they defined it as the middle class because it was kind of the, the median point excluding the, the, the very top of the 1%. It was the median point between, you know, the poor and the wealthy. And, uh, you know, yeah, they don't, go ahead. There's no factor in savings. I mean, to be, to be successful, you have to have a nest egg. It helps. It helps, you know, to be able to, to be able to be caught, you know, to catch yourself when you fall. Yeah, I get it. Paul, thanks for the call. Larry in Los Angeles. Hey, Larry, what's up? Hi. I wish when you had those Republicans on the air, you would ask them if their policies worked so well, why is it that every Republican president for the last 124 years has crashed our economy? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> right up, and that resulted in right up to, ninth, to uh, 2016, where all of the points in the markets for, from every index was put there when a Democrat was in the White House. So if their policies are so good, and, 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 uh, and, if, and if Manchin I, I don't understand that guy except that I know he's a Republican. He's just calling himself a Democrat because he, he, all of his arguments sound like the arguments of a Republican. He trashed Biden for Afghanistan, and he, he basically ignored what Donald Trump did when he got the Taliban leadership out of prison so that he could negotiate with deplorables and then put 5,000 additional troops on the battlefield, yeah. the Taliban. Yeah, okay. no, I'm, I'm with you. And, and he basically paid off the Taliban and said, stop shooting at us so I'll look good and I'll give you the whole country. And I don't want anything in exchange for it. You don't even have to stop being terrorists. You know, it was crazy. You're right, Larry. Larry, thank you very much. Very, very, very well done. Russ in Hickory Hills, Illinois. Hey, Russ, what's on your mind today? Is this the end of the Republic, Republican moderates, as I call them, the Democrats? Because last Sunday, Tom, there, here we go again, a moderate. We were supposed to, you know, defund this and that. She goes, oh, no. They, they're entitled to make all their money. I call them, the, all they are is blue dog Republicans, Tom, because if you want to talk about Ronald Reagan, who helped Ronald Reagan 
Chip O'Neill. And who was his understudy? Chris Matthews, who couldn't get enough Republicans on his show. Am I right or wrong? Is this the end of the re- moderate Republicans? Are they going to start fading out of our party? Oh, I think they the moderate for us. I, I, I think moderate Republicans were pushed out of the Republican Party in 2016 with the election. Well, of I mean, Trump. the moderate Democrats now. Oh, the so-called moderate—they're no yeah, better no. than the moderate Republicans. Look at the three in New York, Portland, and uh, California, Tom. Yeah, they could have stopped the drug prices. They kissed the uh, they kissed the rear end of the other part. No, no, I, I I totally get it, Russ. And and what I'm seeing here is that the window, the the so-called Overton window, has shifted dramatically in the last five years. And I think a lot of it is is in part because Donald Trump kind of started this process. He took Bernie Sanders' rhetoric and Sherrod Brown's rhetoric about, hey, free trade isn't working, um, neoliberalism isn't working, deregulation isn't working, no taxes on rich people isn't working, and we're going to raise taxes on rich people, we're going to bring jobs back to America. And, of course, he was lying through his teeth. But now you've got Democrats who are actually saying that and trying to do that, and 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 also let's get money out of politics, and and Democrats trying to do that. And as best I can tell, um, you know the, the the Democrats who are trying to imitate the Republicans who are you know in the in the bag with the big corporations, um, they're starting to lose their mojo. They're starting to lose their power. They're losing their positions. They're being primaried by. I mean, look at Joe Crowley losing his position his seat in uh, New York to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's a classic example. The old blue dogs, the third way, the the new Democrats, you know, Bill Clinton's new Democrats, they're all being pushed out by progressives. And I see that as a really, really good sign. Uh, I think this is a normal evolutionary process for political parties. Let me ask you something. You got one in Portland. Is Portland, New York, and California. You think they'll primary? They're in the heart of the city. You're not going to lose the seat. You think you're going to primary them? I, I don't know. I just don't know, Russ. Uh, you know, <laughs> time will tell. Dennis in Bergenfield, New Jersey. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching us on YouTube. Thank you, uh, Tom. I'd like to ask about a minimum wage increase in 2007. You know, I, I did read a report that said that it did keep about a, a million people or 0.7% of the employ, employed workforce from joining jobs at 15, uh, 515 an hour. But, you know, I guess my question is, uh, obviously, you know, in today's economy, who can survive on 515 an hour? Nobody can. Is it worth, you know, are these jobs that we really want in, in the economy, you know, 515 an hour? Right. Is it okay that we're losing them? The, the essential statement that we the people make when through our government we establish a minimum wage is that the rules of the game of business you know the rule book like the NFL you know rule book the the rule book should be written to say there are some ways that you can run your business that we don't consider acceptable in our society paying people three dollars an hour we don't consider that acceptable in our society if that's the only way you can run your business if your business can only succeed if you if you you know if you pay people four dollars an hour you go broke then you've got a bad business model give it up start something else and you know right now it's set at seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour federally although a lot of states i mean you know here in here in oregon it's heading toward fifteen dollars an hour in washington state they're 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 very close to that um, you know, all across the country, states are raising their minimum wages. But it's really just a statement of what's an acceptable business practice in society. I, yeah, I don't think these these jobs that are even seven twenty five today. You, you know, I, yeah, they're going to go away. Them, 
Those employers yeah. are either going to have to shut down their businesses or they're going to have to recalibrate their, their business model and say, well, gee, maybe the CEO won't make $35 million a year anymore. Maybe he'll only make $10 million a year and uh, the workers are going to start making 10 bucks an hour or 15 bucks an hour or whatever. I mean, you know, it's, they're just going to have to recalibrate yeah. their business. Yeah, they always say, oh, the high school diploma people, who, they're, they're going to lose those jobs. But it's, I mean, these are poverty wage jobs. So should right. we, I don't think we should really be concerned. You know? no, we, no, we shouldn't. Uh, we shouldn't. And, and, the, and the market will correct itself. It really will. I mean, <laughs> I'm not a neoliberal, but there is some truth to that. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Excuse me. Uh, hey, Norma, what's up? Manchin needs to understand that even if he should lose his coal subsidies, he, you know, still going to be rich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why he doesn't want anything to, any money out of the budget going anywhere else. But anyway, um, I got a question uh, that I can't answer. Somebody wants to know if this new voting rights bill has a clause in it that states that all of this so-called money that people have been getting under, you know, Buckley and um, what's the one in the middle? I can't remember the one, the banks. Yeah, but First National Bank versus Bilotti. Frank Bilotti yeah. was the, the attorney general for, or secretary of state, no, attorney general for Massachusetts. He brought the prosecution. Yeah. Okay. Well, supposedly there is a clause in there that from, that if this voting right bill passes, that anyone who receives money from a corporation or a PAC or anything like that, it must become public and easily accessible. Right. And this is the re re main reason they're fighting against the, the voting rights bill? Could be. Is that correct? I'm sure it's not making them happy. <laughs> you know, could be. I think from the Republicans' point of view, they're unanimously fighting against it because, uh, you know, they just, you know, they're, they're, it will make, it will outlaw a lot of the legislation that they've already passed. It'll change the way sure. the states get gerrymandered. Uh, that's why they're running so fast to ch gerrymander their states, just in case the Democrats blow up the filibuster and pass this thing. Uh, so it'll yeah. be a fiat accompli. And, and you, know, it's, it, that, you know, that's what's going on. And, and from the Democratic point of view, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the Overton window is shifting you know, for political, acceptable political dialogue. And what's happening is the increasingly Democrats who are successful at the polls are those Democrats who can go on TV and say, I don't take corporate PAC money. And you know I'm funded by my by my voters, and yes. and uh, and so they would be enthusiastically in favor of any legislation that would point out that you know there are still a few you know like Kurt Schrader here in Oregon there's still a few bought off Democrats who are you know greedily sucking down money from big pharma or from big oil or whatever it may be, and this legislation would out them. Uh, I am surprised you know that that. Uh, you know, all 50 Democrats in the Senate are willing to go along with this. Um, but, but, you know, it's easy to take a moral position when there's no possibility of it passing. That's and, true. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and causing it to pass would mean ending the filibuster. And all of a sudden you talk about ending the filibuster and those senators who are taking huge quantities of money from outside interests, like Manchin and Cinema, and, and apparently Chris Coons as well, start saying, oh, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, so talk is cheap, Norma. Yes. I'm going to violate a rule. I got a letter from the power company. They're going to send me a $50 gift card if I will let them install a Wi-Fi thermostat in my house so they can help me keep my bill down. <laughs> and are you going to do it? 
course not. I'm not going to let someone else control my HVAC, uh, particularly when they said that they're going to fix it so that I wouldn't be paying high rates for peak times. Yeah. Now, and I, so as this I, goes across the country, you, how, are you, they going to let you tell you when you can charge your car? <laughs> well, you know, actually the way that, that it works here in Oregon is uh, you can buy uh, either a regular electric plan where it's the same price 24-7, or you can buy an electric plan where at night the, the price goes down two or three cents a kilowatt hour, and during the day it goes up two or three cents a kilowatt hour. And that's ideal for people who charge their cars overnight, for example. Um, but uh, I actually did that with my thermostat. I got 25 bucks back from my utility, and I, I watched it very carefully last year. And what I saw was that during that three days when it was 116 degrees here, it would periodically, like once an hour during that period of time, it would shut off for maybe 10 minutes. And I'm guessing that you know the, the next door neighbor got shut off 10 minutes after me, and then the next door. So you know they're doing load balancing. I don't think that's a bad thing, Norma. Yeah, but not here in Alabama. We have a total of five million people, of which almost one out of five has COVID so far. Oh, yeah. But uh, here we have very rural areas, and it's not necessary. Yeah. And uh, I'm getting complaints from all my neighbors. What are you going to do? I said, I don't know yet. But um, I never keep my thermostat more than 10 degrees difference in the outside air because I'm in and out so much, I do not want to suffer a great shock and temp change of temperatures. Wow. You, you and my wife. If it's 100 degrees out there, it's going to be 85 in here. Yeah. That's the way it is. Yeah. And if, if it's, you know, like 40 out there, it will probably be 60 in here yeah. but i'm not going to make that i'm not going to keep mine 71 year round yeah no i get it and that's there's a lot of wisdom to that i mean that was that was what jimmy carter was pitching to us back in the day you know wear a sweater uh norma thank you quick math the less your business spends on operations on multiple systems on delivering your product or service the more margin you have and the more money you keep but with higher expenses on materials employees distribution and borrowing everything costs more NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive. And start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. The way car buying should be. And uh, as a tip of the hat to my executive producer, Sean Taylor, we have a couple of audio clips for you. <laughs> just, we're going to step into the Wayback Machine just for a moment, and then I'm going to get back to your phone calls. But uh, first, here is uh, Senator Ted Kennedy 
and uh, you know, asking, when does the greed stop? Here he is. $240 billion in tax breaks for corporations, $36 billion in tax breaks for small businesses, increase in productivity, 42% over the last 10 years. But do you think there's any increase in the minimum wage? No. What is the price? We ask the other side. What is the price that you want from these working men and women? What cost? How much more do we have to give to the private sector and the business? How many billion dollars more are you asking? Are you requiring? When does the greed stop? Kirsten Cinema. Um, so, uh, and then, you know, the, the, the flip side of that, of course, you know, how do we pay for federal programs? We pay for them with tax dollars. Franklin Roosevelt famously raised the top income tax rate to 91% on income over what would be about $3 million a year in today's money. And here's what he had to say about all this, you know, about the pushback that he was getting from people like Kirsten Cinema, who are saying, uh, well, you build back better is just fine, but you can't tax rich people to do that. Are you kidding? No, you can't do that. A number of my friends who belong in the very high upper bracket have suggested to me on several occasions of late that if I am re-elected president, they will have to move to some other nation because of high taxes here. Now, I will miss them very much. <laughs> and that needs to be Joe Biden's response. Okay, let's pick up your phone calls here. Uh, Bobby in La Puente, California. Hey, Bobby, what's on your mind? Hey, thank you for that clip. Uh, Ted Kennedy, greed, greed. When are we going to break the fever of greed in this nation? Oh, Mostly the Republicans. we got to start organizing, unionizing. This Betos that you mentioned a couple of weeks ago going up in that dildo, if I can say that, rocket. Mm -hmm. Okay. You said why no. It's, it's every it time every time some Amazon show comes on the TV and they they flash the the Amazon logo. It's like you know, in, in my house, it's like oh, there's the Amazon penis again. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it, Bobby. So yeah, hey, I'm back you to you. You know, you get Shafter riding along. Yeah. Uh, then on the other side, he's uh, on the Social Security. That what is that? Uh, Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage. Yeah. You know, dis disinforming. Yeah, we should citizen. call it Medicare disadvantage, actually, is should be what it's called. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they're doing harm. You know, when are they going to break the greed? We need more of that Ted Kennedy, voices like that. That's what I want to do, shout at the TV. Yeah. Look, the union helped me. If it wasn't for the union listeners, I'd be in the penitentiary. That's where my brother, two of them, there was no hope. And the union, thank the creator God. That's what we need, in my opinion, to start organizing. You imagine Amazon from Amazon in the South. Let them wake up to the benefits. Sending your children to a doctor, pension, come on, education, you know, for your children. What more does it take for these people to wake up? They're being fleeced. How I think, I think people are take? getting it. You know, as I said, I keep pointing this out. In 2016, Donald Trump said he was going to raise taxes on rich people so much that his rich friends would refuse to talk to him and it was going to cost him a fortune. And that's what people elected him to do. He obviously didn't do that. He did the exact opposite of that. And that's why he didn't get, in part, why he didn't get reelected, why he lost by 7 million votes, one of the largest landslides in American history. 
But, you know, yeah, that's what the American people want, Bobby. They want the rich to pay their damn fair share. If I can see that uneducated, why can't these educated people see that they're being fleeced? I think they um, do. I think they're just, well, you know, they're just. We'll come around. Yeah, they're, right. they're, they're just dancing to the tune of their own class interests. Bobby, thank you. It's always not, so nice to hear from you. Thank you very much. Tom in Temecula, California. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind today? These pharmaceutical companies that make such huge profits uh, based on the research of the universities and, and others. And it seems to me that we should put on some sort of a royalty um, almost like a VAT uh, tax, every, every contributor to the process along the way that in the development of a, a given drug should then get a percentage of the profits based on their contribution to the final product. Yeah, I, you know, I'm with you. I, you know, most of the drugs that are developed in the United States are funded by federal money, and almost all of the original drugs are funded by federal money. The, the, uh, the pharmaceutical industry does have a large R&D budget, but they don't use that money to develop brand new drugs. They let the federal governments and universities do that. They use that money to tweak existing drugs so that as they run out of patent and, and become generics, they have a new patented brand that comes behind that. So when Prozac runs out of patent, they, you know, they add a hydroxyl group or something someplace to it. It's still just as effective, maybe it lasts an hour less or an hour longer or whatever. And uh, and and branded as uh, you know uh, something new. I'm sorry, I don't. I'm not. I don't want to give out phony drug names, but um, you know what I'm saying. And uh, and so uh, and, and and there was a time when, by and large, we did recover some of that. Uh, that all got blown up. Uh, I wrote an op-ed about this a couple weeks ago, and I don't remember the exact date. I did a deep dive on the research on it, and there are links to it in that op-ed about you know big pharma ripping us off, but. Um, yeah, I think I think that we should seriously consider, you know, uh, holding. Well, we do actually, in many cases, continue to hold the patents. What they do is they license those patents to the drug companies. You know, same effect. That background stuff is still the same. That yeah. research, so that yeah. that's still an ingredient, if you will, yeah. um, of the final product, even if they tweak it. And if it's funded by the federal government, then the federal government should get a, a kickback for um, their contribution to the. I'm completely with you. Or at least, I mean, the way the law uh, reads, actually, you know, with the uh, walk-in provisions, is that if if they're selling it at such a price for getting ripped off, we can go in and change that. And and I think that needs to be strengthened, frankly. And the pharmaceutical industry right now is proposing legislation to weaken that. So excellent points, Tom. Thank you very much for making them. Dave in New Brunswick, it says you want to disagree with me about protectionism. I wanted to get you in after the break so we could have a little little more time to talk. What's up, Dave? I disagree in part. Basically, um, my premise is that if you take steel production, we're producing as much steel as we did in 1990, with half, as, I believe, with a third or half as many employees. Right. So just having just having blade, you know, carpet um, tariffs, I don't think it's going to it's going to solve the problem that one of your other callers called in about, which you said that basically our middle class is a bunch of people making around $85 an hour waiting to, to lose their jobs and exit the middle class, and our middle class is shrinking. I mean, if if, if we're making the same amount of steel as we did in 1990, it, that problem is only going to get worse because automation is, only, is, is going to half the amount of uh, people per production. Whereas I think what we need is a society that does things smartly. Um, for instance, an environmental or carbon tax 
tax tariff could could work better, you know, so that so that let's say our steel our, we have steel companies that are doing electric production right now that are cleaner. Uh, it's a cleaner production of steel than than competitors around the world. We should we should tariff the steel that's more dirty, or we should tariff products that are dirty, and then also we should reorganize our economy. For instance, we shouldn't have industrial farming anymore. Um, they've done studies, and that over time, organic farms produce just as much food. So in many cases, more and more nutritious, up okay. to fifty percent more nutritious. Um, and Dave, let me let me produce a slightly different frame because you're right. You know, as as technology has improved. A lot of those jobs, you know, even if we brought back all 60,000 factories that have left America since, since uh, the beginning of the neoliberal era in the 1980s, uh, even if we brought them all back, they would probably employ fewer than half of the people that they did before just because of automation and advances in manufacturing technology. And, and, and I agree that that's not a bad thing. It doesn't provide jobs, but, you know, it's uh, improvements in technology are just, the, that's life, you know. But the question I would ask, and this is where I was going to go with Joe Walsh if he had stuck, if he had hung on with me, but um, you know he, he chose not to. But um, is we have a situation now where, for example, here in Oregon, we got a local billionaire. His name is Phil Knight. He's a he's a good guy. He he's, you know gives a lot of philanthropy to the local community. He's, he he helps out Oregon. Um, his company, the company that he started, Nike, does not manufacture shoes in the United States. In fact, they don't manufacture shoes at all. They buy them from whoever the lowest supplier is in Asia, and they move around from country to country wherever the cheapest labor is. And, and so, you know, a $100 pair of shoes that we pay 100 bucks for here is costing them, you know, say 5 or $10 to be manufactured, and everything else is marketing. It's, you know, he's, he's quite proud of the fact that he's running essentially a marketing yeah, a charitable company. donation to, to help out his sweatshops. Right, yeah. So the question is, how does that help America? Well, the thing is, is um, in theory, we should be, uh, we, we shouldn't, I don't think we're that far away from automating the, pro, automating switch No, I, I, the same thing is true of Apple. You know, Apple, Steve Jobs and his family made billions of dollars, and, and he's not alone in that, you know, a bunch of early Apple investors, and they manufacture their products in China. How does that help America? I mean, well, what is what I'm saying? I'm saying I'm not just talking about the jobs. I'm talking about the whole thing. I mean, you know, if China wanted to to take us down because they're pissed off about Taiwan, all they'd have to do is refuse to manufacture any more Apple products. I mean, or you know, well, now the production's moving from China to Vietnam. Exactly. So it, it, well, the thing is, so again, also, how does that help, help America? I get it. It helped Steve Jobs. I get it that it, you know Phil Knight's become a billionaire because of this. How does that help America? And I'm not just talking about jobs. I'm talking about this larger issue. And this is this well, is a conversation we have not had in this country since 1992. That was the last time we had this conversation was the election of 92 when Ross Perot was saying what I'm saying right now. And he got 18 percent of the vote. He did. He got 19 percent. But I'm, I'm saying also the world isn't being helped by stuff being shipped in long supply chains either. I agree. Not in, and in another way that that doesn't help America. What's that? Another way that it doesn't help America to make things overseas. So where is well, the benefit so Germany, to us? Germany, Why would anybody an def defend Germany this? Germany is a, in part an exporter because the government subsidizes housing. So a problem with our production is that our housing costs 
have been jacked up by the banks. You know, they've been they've lowered sales sales taxes. Yeah, I, taxes. I don't think that's what makes Germany an exporting powerhouse. I think it's more. It, they're, they're it, using it, it helps a great deal. The housing cost is significantly lower than than other parts of of Europe and the United States. No, I get that. I lived there. And and the government. I'm just saying, it's because the government builds we housing. We should bring down our housing costs so more people. Can I agree, be but again, to, to the question of manufacturing overseas, this neoliberal free trade idea that took hold in the 80s and is now the official policy of the United States. How does it help America to make anything overseas? How does that help America? Nobody's ever been able to answer that question for me. It it, it, it helps well, Phil Knight. It helps Steve Jobs's family. You know, it, it, it helps the billionaires who are in the manufacturing industry. It helps the Walton family because they can buy cheap junk from China and sell it in their stores. But how does it help America? For a short time, it helped, it helped in that inputs for certain things that we used to assemble here. The only answer that I've heard is what Joe Walsh says. It gives us access to cheap stuff. I would trade cheap stuff for national security and good jobs any day. Bottom line. I'm not disagreeing with you, but it's still not going to impact, you know, where the middle class is, is a bunch of people waiting, waiting to fall out of it. I think that's the problem that's got to be solved. Well, yeah, and that doesn't, you know, we could bring factories back tomorrow morning, and if they all were $7 an hour jobs, it wouldn't do much good. So, you know, we also have to have, you know, labor unions and standards and things like that. Yeah, good point, Dave. Thank you. Jeff in Portland. Hey, Jeff, what's up? You know, I do want to apologize uh, for misinterpreting your position on Merrick Garland last week. Um, I'm glad we're on the same page. You know, he, he really does need to uphold the rule of law for us to have a functioning democracy with uh, free and fair elections. And to that point, Congress has to do its job, too. Um, it's similar to what you've been saying and writing for a long time, but I, I do recommend Ari Berman's piece um, in Mother Jones uh, this week. Uh, Republicans are planning to hijack the next election. Dems are squandering their chance to stop them. Um, but, but, yeah, and Tom, assuming that Garland, Biden, and the Dems take the steps to protect and expand voting rights, uh, besides the women's vote, which was key in 2020, I think, you know, we can increase and expand the youth vote and the, and the working class vote, which you talked about with uh, Joe Walsh earlier. You know, we just can't let Manchin's disingenuous rhetoric uh, sabotage and water down this uh, reconciliation bill. You know, he, he, he's using a few thousand dead-end coal mining jobs to stand in the way of putting out the global fire that fossil fuels have, have wrought. And, you know, in my opinion, Tom, uh, Biden and the Democratic leaders should be reaching directly out to these miners and other West Virginians, assuring them there's going to be a just economic transition. Millions of new jobs are going to be created, sustainable right. jobs that, are going to, that, as you say, are going to make us competitive in the 21st century. So to that end, um, do you think um, he's enlisting, President Biden's enlisting organized labor leaders' um, efforts enough in this fight? You know, I mean, I, I haven't really heard much from, you know, there's a lot of labor unrest right now. I doubt, I doubt he's going to get much from the coal miners union, but I agree with you, Jeff. If he went into West Virginia and said, hey, would you rather be breathing coal dust all day long as part of your job, or would you rather be building, you know, nice stainless steel wind, wind uh, turbines or installing solar panels on people's rooftops? 
uh, and, and making even more money at doing it, that he would probably be uh, receiving a warm welcome. Jeff, thanks a lot for the call. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance Nate, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick White, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carnivore. Verde, all the folks who helped make this program work. Thank you. And thank you to you for letting our stations know that you're listening. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. See you on Monday. <laughs>